Lemonada. When I was about 28, I got pregnant for the first time and I was crazy happy. I got pregnant easily. I felt very fertile, very womanly. And then, quite late in the pregnancy, my husband Brad and I discovered that this little fetus was not going to live. So that was emotionally devastating, as you can imagine, but it got worse because I developed an infection that landed me in the hospital. And I mean, this whole thing was just a complete nightmare. Of course, my mom flew out to be with me, and before she left, she told her best friend Ellie that she was coming out to be with me, and naturally, the first thing that Ellie said to her was, so what are you going to (laughs) cook? After a couple of days, I finally got out of the hospital and I came home to recuperate, but I wasn't allowed to get up out of bed yet. I was, as they say, bedridden. But my mom cooked. She made this incredible cozy chili in a cast iron skillet with cornbread on top in the pan. And she and my husband, Brad, set up a little card table at the foot of the bed And the smell of that cornbread and the chili was so wonderful. It just filled the room and the whole house and my heart, really. Because here's the thing. I couldn't eat. I I wasn't yet allowed to have solid food. But it didn't matter. It was the best meal ever. And I didn't even eat it. The making of it was so comforting. It was so embracing. Food is central to the traditions of my family. I would think that to most families, that's the case. I relate food, especially to my mom. She's a great cook. This is one of my greatest memories around food, even though it has sort of an odd kicker, really. Like my sweet niece, Fia, says before a meal, We'd like to give thanks to everyone who had a hand in bringing this nutritious, delicious food to our table. (laughs) Isn't that a lovely prayer? (laughs) I am so thankful to have food. God knows plenty of people don't. And I'm also so thankful that today I'm talking with food writer Ruth Reichel. Hi, I'm Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and this is Wiser Than Me, a show where I get schooled by women who are wiser than me. For a tasty treat today, I am talking to Ruth Reichel, who does so much that's impossible to describe her as any one thing. She is an actual fucking polymath, a celebrated chef, a restaurateur, an early mover and shaker, and what I guess you'd call the farm-to-table kind of food movement. She can correct me on that when we get going. She reinvented the role of food critic at the L.A. Times and the New York Times. And as editor, she reinvented Gourmet Magazine, which is where I first fell in love with her, deeply in love with her. I was obsessed with Gourmet. 
That's where she published actual food literature by people like David Foster Wallace, which is no surprise because she's also a fancy-ass writer herself, writing nearly a dozen books, amazing cookbooks, revelatory memoirs like Tender at the Bone, and a novel. She's won seven James Beard Awards, which is like the Oscars for food, and she's earned a reputation as a totally subversive democratizing force, an activist in the world of food. She's also a daughter, a wife, and a mother, and she's obviously wiser than me. Holy shit, Ruth. (laughs) The idea of being wise, just, it's daunting. It is daunting. So pretend we're just having a conversation. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So first of all, are you comfortable saying your age? Yes, You can't think of yourself as young anymore when you're 75. (laughs) And and that's that's a very strange idea to me because I don't feel like an old person. Yeah, you don't look like one either, if you don't mind my saying. Well, thank you. Um... My biggest problem with getting older is, you know, there are things that you think of like, when my cats die, will I get more cats? Because they would outlive me. It's funny. I've had the same thought about my dog, George, because I figure he'll live like 14 years and then I'll be into my 70s or I'll be 75. Let's say he kicks it then. Do we get another animal? Yeah. So you think about things like that. I mean, you actually think, will I be around when X happens? Right. I mean, that's the big thing I mind because I hate the idea of not being here. You know, I never want to miss a party, you know. I'm having so much fun in this life. I just, I'm not ready to give it up. Yeah, I hear that. There's a lot of joy to be had. I mean, it's funny because not, I don't want to get morbid, but you know, I had breast cancer a few years back. And when I got the diagnosis, which was so fucking terrifying, but one of my first thoughts was, I don't want to go. I don't want to leave. I do not want to leave. And it was sort of what you're talking about. I want to, I'm, I, I am not ready for an exit in any sense, you know? Exactly. But you've survived it, right? Oh, you're, yes. You're fine. Yes, I am. Touchwood. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I'm five years out now, so that's a good thing. First of all, the way you write about food and your food memories, I was talking about this with my husband, Brad, whom you know, and he was saying that it reminded him of writing about music. What is your process to write about food in such a way so that people feel it, taste it, experience it? What is that process for you, if you can break it down? I don't know if you can. Well, I can try. I mean, in uh, in, in many ways, food is my music, you know? I mean, um, the kind of pleasure that other people get out of music, I get out of food. And it just gives me endless joy. And I have always wanted other people to understand that here is this simple pleasure. You know, it's it's there. It's available to all of us yeah. all of the time. Right. And I really believe that it's important to be open to the little pleasures of life. I mean, I think that's probably the secret to living is to be aware when you taste a strawberry that, you know, it's a moment of grace that you're, you're in the world. I mean, or if you're out walking in the rain and, and just that feel, 
I mean, all of those things are a way that we can experience joy. And you know, I grew up in an America that didn't care about food, didn't appreciate food. You know, American food was a joke in the 50s. Right. Um, and, you know, I lived in New York and I was surrounded by all this really wonderful food. And I kept sort of like wanting to say to people, here, here it is. Just, right. you know. So I spent a lot of time thinking about how do you describe the intangible? And, you know, the more you think about it, the more you understand that I have no idea if you taste what I taste. Right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a personal, you know, it's going on in your mouth. And who knows if anybody else in the whole world tastes what you taste. So I always tried to write about food in ways that transcended flavor. Uh I mean, saying that something tastes like lemon isn't very useful if you hate lemon or lemon doesn't taste. I mean, I love lemon, but if lemon doesn't taste the same way to you as it does to me, how is that useful? But if you say, when I have fresh lemonade, it feels to me like walking in the rain beneath the lilac bush Or it's as good as that shower you take when you come in from a run. And then you're sort of telling people what the experience of it is rather than the flavor. Right. I spent a lot of time trying to think about how would I describe this flavor in a way that would make sense to someone who had, who who basically didn't, wasn't able to taste so you're sort of connecting it to experience and to memory and you're getting in the inside of it in a way, in that sense. Yes. Um, and you're trying to take experiences that we all know. What is it like on the first day that it snows and you go outside and you haven't seen snow for a year? Yeah, yeah. What is it like to catch a snowflake on your tongue That's a useful way of describing eating a souffle, you know, the way it just evaporates. Right. (laughs) Oh, you're so right. That's amazing. Have your taste buds changed as you've gotten older? Probably, but I'm not aware of it. Really? It's like being the frog in the pot of boiling water. It happens so gradually that you haven't noticed it got hot. But like when you were younger, were there foods that you loved or hated that you feel differently about now? Or is it sort of remain? Well, I, you know, I've only really ever hated one food. And the truth is that I don't hate it as much as I used to. Ah, I have always loathed honey. What in the living fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I can't stand honey. I just hate it. Really? It makes it, it, it's like it makes my whole body quiver. I just can't stand that taste, but I can tolerate it now. And I, you know, when I was a kid, I really couldn't. I used to hate honey when I was little, but as I've gotten older, I've grown to like it a lot. Incomprehensible to me that someone could like honey. I know most people do. God, I mean, like, if you could describe honey, your experience with honey, how would you describe it? I would describe it as like, 
leaping into a mud puddle, which turns out to be deeper than you thought it was. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the bees now hate you. (laughs) (laughs) No, they're happy because I'm not stealing their honey. Yeah, it's true. They don't want you to steal their honey. No, they they don't. They like me a lot. Yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) God. So what's the best, since we're, we're dancing around the ideas of experience and, and wisdom and so on, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? Well, let me see. When I was, um, I'd been a freelance writer. I was living in Berkeley in a commune. And I was asked to become the restaurant critic of the LA Times. Right. And I was very reluctant to move to Los Angeles, to take a job. I mean, I was 35 and I'd never had a real job. I'd always been freelance. Uh Um, I had become very good friends with MFK Fisher. Mm -hmm. And I told her that I had gotten this job offer and I was going to turn it down. And she said, you take that job. You are polishing every word you write as if it were a gem. And... You need the experience of going to a newspaper where an editor says to you, I need 15 inches and I need it in an hour. And you do it. And it's not the best thing you ever wrote, but it's good enough. And tomorrow it's going to be lining someone's birdcage. And you just need, you need that experience. You, you need to learn to write fast and to not have it be perfect. Not to be precious about it. Yes. And I took the job. And I think it was a piece of advice that transcended, you know, take that job. It was about perfection in some ways. I see. You know, as an editor, I have known so many writers who can't turn the work in because it's not perfect yet. And you can waste your whole life looking for perfection. Because nothing will ever be perfect. No book is ever really finished. You know, you could you could keep making those sentences better. So, I mean, the advice that she gave me essentially was, don't ever think that perfection is your goal, because it's not. It can't be. There's more with Ruth Reichel in just a few moments. Say hello to your in-real-life makeup filter in a bottle, CoverGirl's Simply Ageless Skin Perfector Essence. CoverGirl knows when it comes to makeup, sometimes it can feel like a trade-off between products that work and products that keep your skin healthy in the long run. That's why they introduced their new skincare and makeup hybrid foundation, the Skin Perfector Essence. It harnesses the power of micro-droplet technology with pigmented capsules designed to burst upon application, melting seamlessly into the skin to deliver a natural, even-toned glow. This foundation is the ultimate blend of skincare and makeup. It boasts 0.5% Bacuchiol, a plant-based retinal substitute promising to rejuvenate your skin. 
Hydration is also front and center thanks to CoverGirl's formulation featuring 71% water content. This essence promises an immediate hydration hit that keeps working for up to 24 hours, leaving your skin feeling nourished, revitalized, and radiantly healthy. And with eight versatile shades, finding your ideal match is a breeze. This skin perfector essence is an essential go-to, whether you're gearing up for an evening out, aiming for a no-makeup makeup look for daytime, or setting the scene for a romantic date. And the best part is it's all clean, vegan, and cruelty-free. Embrace the effortless beauty that comes with CoverGirl's Simply Ageless Skin Perfector Essence. Find your shade now, only from easy breezy beautiful CoverGirl. Hi, I'm Glennon Doyle, author of Untamed and host of the podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. On We Can Do Hard Things, my wife, Abby, my sister, Amanda, and I do the only thing we've found that has ever made life any easier. We drop the fake and we just talk really raw and honestly about all all the hard parts of life. So come on over and join us and some of our friends and greatest heroes like former First Lady Michelle Obama, Tracy Ellis Ross, Gloria Steinem, Elizabeth Gilbert, Brandi Carlisle, Brene Brown, and our beloved community, the Pod Squad. You'll hear refreshingly honest conversations, trust me, about sex, gender, parenting, blended families, our bodies, anxiety, addiction, feeling overwhelmed, just all of it. Life is hard, so let's do it together. Meet us every Tuesday and Thursday for We Can Do Hard Things, one of Apple and Spotify's top shared podcasts of 2023. Listen to and follow We Can Do Hard Things, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and everywhere you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us suffer from decision paralysis, like we all wish we had more time, but when we actually find time in our schedules, we don't know how to spend it. Sometimes discovering what matters most requires a bit of reflection and support. That's where a therapist can be absolutely critical. Therapists can help you look plainly at how you spend your time and figure out what's actually making you happy or even what's actually helping you make progress towards a goal. Whether it's through helping you through a crisis or just navigating through the structure of your day, therapy can make all the difference. Being able to do a weekly step back with a professional means getting perspective on your own life you didn't have before, and it can definitely help you to see the decisions you're making more clearly. If you're considering therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's an entirely online platform tailored for convenience, flexibility, and your schedule. Simply complete a short questionnaire to connect with a licensed therapist. Plus, you can switch therapists at any time without extra fees. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash wiser today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash wiser. So complicated women. So your mother was a very complicated person. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, Yes, yes. Yeah. She really was. And, you know, she was bipolar. Yeah. You know, as one of her shrinks said to me about the worst bipolar case he had ever encountered. I mean, she was really, I mean, the highs were really high where she didn't sleep for weeks. And the lows were she would go to bed for six months and read the same book over and over and over again for six months. But, you know, if you have a really crazy parent, one of two things happens. They either destroy you or they make you strong. And, you know, I literally still, I wake up every morning grateful that I'm not my mother. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and I'm very aware of my good fortune in being sane. And that's a piece of great good fortune. And if you recognize your fortune early in your life, and I knew it from the time that I was about eight or nine, that my mother was deeply unhappy and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. There's a real measure of happiness. I mean, I feel like I am basically a happy person and that that happiness comes from knowing that I don't have the same burdens that my mother did. Was your dad a happy man? He wasn't unhappy. Uh huh. My dad was a sort of classic European intellectual. <laughs> and I don't think happiness even figured into his idea of mm. what life is, mm. Mm. you know? I didn't and don't have parents with as bad a mental health issue as your mother, but my father, who's since passed, is, oh God, he was a a true narcissist in the clinical sense. So I can understand what you're talking about, sort of recognizing it, and I've spent a lot of time in my own life trying to uh, somehow fix that with him, but there was something nice when I realized that's him and that's not me. And away from that is where I live, you know, separate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's a very big step. And I think there was a point in my life where my mother was inside my head. And I can't even tell you, I wish if I knew how I exercised her, you know, I, I could change the world. I don't know how it happened, but there was a point when suddenly she just didn't have that power over me anymore. Hmm. Um, and I was an adult, at, you know, at the time that that happened, where she and I were just truly separate. So does that mean you didn't talk to her as you got older? No, no, not at all. It just meant that when I did talk to her, she didn't have that power over me anymore. I mean, my first husband and I moved back to New York yeah. after college And my parents were so in our life. I mean, my mother was so in our life Mm. that we finally just realized we had to leave. I I knew I couldn't live in the same city as she did. Uh But my feeling, my sense when I would go home, I would go home to New York. And as I was knocking on the door, I would have this feeling that when the door opened, I would turn back into eight-year-old little Ruthie again. Mm. You know, and that I would be right back where I was. And it's why I had to keep her out of my life. Right. And then there was a time when I could open that door and walk in as me. And stay you. And stay me and be the competent grown-up person that I was. And when did your mom pass? I was in my mid-40s when Uh she passed. Mm -hmm. And then your dad after that? Oh, no, he, he died earlier. Oh, he died earlier. Were you in charge of taking care of her? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When I was at the LA Times, my mother would call me like 12 times a day. Okay. And she would say things like, there's no food in the house. You have to come to New York and <laughs> go buy me food. And I'd say, Mom, the Jefferson Market delivers. Call them up. So was she, she was battling her mental health illness even to the very end, right? Or was she yes. a little more stable? Mm. No, she, she had a period of stability, and I could tell you how that ended, but it's so tragic, I won't. But okay. she did have a few wonderful years. Oh, that's nice. As, a, as an old person, really wonderful years, where she was, you know, where we would all like to be, mm-hmm. which is like halfway into the first martini. She was just a little bit high. 
Uh-huh. And she could stay there. Stay I mean, right she, there. She stayed right there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Since I've been somebody who's been on the receiving end of criticism, negative uh-huh. and pot, yeah, and positive, <laughs> how did you reconcile your your power as a critic? How, how, did, how do you come to terms with that yourself? I kept a photograph of a young couple on my bulletin board, which I, you know, looked at it every day when I was writing reviews. And I imagined that they were people who didn't have very much money and they saved up all year to go out for one great meal on their anniversary. And I imagine every time I was tempted to hedge my bets and say something nicer than I really felt about a restaurant, I would look at them and think, they're going to go there because you said that. And they kept me honest. So you felt an obligation to, to the consumers out there. I did. I mean, I felt like, you know, that's who I'm writing for. That's who's paying me. And, you know, I'm sorry if, you know, my reviews hurt people. On the other hand, you know, most restaurants want to be reviewed. Yeah. And... I have to tell the truth. And if I can't do that, I shouldn't be doing this job. Mm-hmm. Those reviews really, they, they have an impact. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's unfortunate because people love bad reviews. I mean, people really, the consumers love to read those, you know, these really nasty reviews. And it's easier to write nasty reviews than it is good ones. Mm. You know, I mean, you can be very funny writing mean reviews, but... You know, the real obligation is to the consumer. And the other obligation is to the people who are really talented and who run restaurants and work really hard. And it's not fair to them if you're saying that someone who's only doing a mediocre job is better than they really are. Right. You know, I'm glad I don't have to do it anymore. I'm really glad. That's a lot of, that's a different hat, isn't it? It's a different hat, and, it, and it's, I don't think, a particularly fun one. And I should say that, you know, when I started writing reviews, it was a very different time. You know, I mean, chefs didn't have PR people. and Yeah, they weren't celebrities for the most part. They weren't celebrities. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, it was a much easier time. And then ha- sort of halfway through my career, that all shifted. And then I started wearing the disguises and, you know, I mean, when I got to New York, I really was the enemy. I mean. Did you wear a wig? I wore many wigs. Oh my God. I can't. Did you take pictures of yourself? Um, there are a few pictures. I mean, mostly <laughs> I didn't because I didn't want them floating around out there. Yeah. The best disguise I ever had was as my mother. Yeah. Because I had her clothes and I had all her jewelry and... I got this, my mother had short gray hair. Yeah. And I got this short gray wig and I took a picture and sent it to my brother. And I had never thought I looked like my mother, but Bob's response was, I've never seen that picture of mom before. No, really? Yeah. And I really looked like her. And then I behaved like her and it was weird. Really? Uh, yeah. It, it it was very, I mean, my mother was, I mean, like, I am a person who, in my real life, mm. I have never sent anything back in my life. I mean, I just don't do that. Wait a minute. You mean you don't send food back if it comes and there's, like, 
I don't. Lots of hair and things in no, it? I've never gotten lots of hair. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think of the worst case scenario, you know, or bugs or something. You just won't. I, I don't. Uh-huh. No. I'm, I, you know, I am not a squeaky wheel in real life. I'm just not. Hmm. My mother, on the other hand, sent everything back. The drink wasn't cold enough. The soup wasn't hot enough. Whatever it was, it went back. And you were dying. And I, I was dying. Yeah. My father and I were both dying while mom was sending this stuff back. Oh. And so there I was being my mother and, you know, imperiously sending everything back. It was kind of fun. You're very direct, though, Ruth. You may not be a squeaky wheel, but what impresses me about you is how direct you are. I know. I, I, it, it's odd. I mean, I don't think of myself as direct, but I know I am. No, you are. I am. Yeah. Um, In a way I like very much. I am not a complainer. I see. And I, I'm just, you know, if someone says to me, how was it? I will say, well, it really wasn't very good. Yeah. There was a lot of hair and bugs in it. <laughs> there, there were bugs. In. <laughs> what about this big piece of glass? <laughs> I had to go to the ER afterwards. Oh, God. <laughs> in your business, I mean, you've worked in a world where people can be incredibly misbehaved and entitled. How have you managed to navigate these, these douchebags? And by the way, I work in a world that's similar to that, too. And I'm wondering, uh, how, how do you think you've done that? I don't know. You know, I mean, being at Condé Nast was really something because you want know to talk about entitled people. Oh, my God. I mean, the stories that the drivers would tell you about, you know, what happened in their cars, what people did to their cars. Um, really? I, w- I think I was probably the only editor at Condé Nast who took the subway. And I once had the great joy of making my publisher come on the subway with me. Who? Cy Newhouse? Not Cy. No, no. His... his um, his nephew's wife was my pu- my first publisher. Uh-huh. We were somewhere and there was like traffic. And I said, oh, come on, let's just take the subway. You know, And she was like, oh, my God, you expect me to take the subway? And you made her do and it. And I made her do it. I said, you know, OK, you know, we can take the subway. And it'll take 10 minutes or we can like wait for your stupid car to come and it'll be an hour. Right. I don't want to waste an hour. So she very reluctantly came down into the subway with me. But... <laughs> Um, They were just to be a real object lesson. I mean, because when I got to Condé Nast, one, I thought, this is not the rest of my life. At some point, I'm going to get fired. As Mm -hmm. everybody at Condé Nast gets fired eventually. Uh And so I better not get used to being a princess. The fancy? I'm not going to be a princess my whole life. So why why do it now? Why even get used to it? Uh Uh-huh. And so I was very aware of the fact that this was not real life. It was not my life. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be any of those people. They made me sick. They really did. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how you navigated them. Yeah. You paid no attention to them. Yeah, yeah. In that sense. Yeah. I like that. You know, I mean, one of my favorite moments at Gourmet was I sent... Two of my people off to do a story about this halal butcher where uh-huh. you chose your own goat and then they blessed the goat and killed it in front of you. And they come back to the magazine carrying this warm goat in a big plastic bag. <laughs> and, 
and they they run into the office and there's an elevator door that's just closing and and they rush in with this bag of reeking goat and Anna Wintour is in there. I was just going to say, please tell me Anna Wintour was in there. Anna Wintour was in there. And they said she was just so horrified. She backed into the corner. You know, nobody was supposed to even get in the elevator with her. If she was in the elevator, you were supposed to wait for the next one. (laughs) That's hilarious. But nobody said anything about a a goat carcass coming into the elevator. (laughs) Exactly. They said other people, but not a goat carcass. (laughs) Not a goat carcass. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great story. I love that. God damn it. (laughs) I wish we had a, like my dad used to say, I wish we had an oil painting of that moment. (laughs) (laughs) shit. We'll get more wisdom from Ruth Reichel after this super quick break. Stay tuned. You wrote that piece for, I think it was for Allure about your body and being heavy as a kid and, or you called yourself fat. And that getting fat took up a lot of energy in your life. How do you push past that voice in your head to seize the opportunities of being a food critic or or whatever? How did you relax? Have you been able to relax about your body and the idea of gaining or losing weight? Or is that still very present in your life? I would say a little bit of both. Mm. You know, I did have this remarkable experience of meeting a man who I then married who like likes big women. Mm. And so for the first time in my life, that little voice that said, don't eat that, don't eat that. And that little voice, it seems to me, makes you just eat more. You know, the more you look at something and think yes. I shouldn't eat that. Yes. We started living together and that voice went away. And my experience of this, I don't know if it's true, but my experience of it was that I woke up one morning and I had lost 35 pounds. And it was just because I had stopped obsessing about it. The relationship between food and women in particular is so fraught and in a way that is completely unjust. And I certainly battled my weight when I was younger. And I always felt sort of like this dumpy person as a youth, I felt kind of, you know, once I became a teenager and I, I was uncomfortable with weight and I, and I overate. I was an overeater to a certain extent. But as I've gotten older, and maybe there's something about having kids too. I don't know. I, the, the relationship that I have had with food has changed dramatically in a way that I'm relieved by, you know, really relieved. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the, the thing about weight is it's, it's also about, are you pretty? I know. Which is so important when you're young. And, you know, I just kept hearing over and over again, you just, you'd be so pretty if you just lose some weight. Right. And my mother, you know, got me to smoke when I was 12 because, you know, if you smoke, you won't eat. Oh, Lord Jesus. Um, (laughs) 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 You know, for me, the big lesson was don't say no. And, you know, if... If I feel like I can always eat anything, um, that the no isn't there, then I don't have a problem. 
Oh my God, do I agree with that? That's why in this very drawer <laughs> of the desk that I'm talking to you on, I, it's my chocolate drawer. I love chocolate. And I have a piece of chocolate every single day. And that's a game changer. Exactly. Let's talk about that transition for you becoming the editor at Gourmet. You had never edited a magazine before and a pretty, I don't know, what can we say it was at the time? Tony? uh, It was a Bible. It was like, you know, it was like the American food Bible. How did you make that kind of leap? Because I think you were a little fearful of it, yeah? No, I was very fearful of it. I mean, because I didn't think I knew how to do it. How I made the leap was two ways. One was an older woman, a friend of mine, and I said, you know, Paula, I would love to do this, but I'm not quite ready yet. You know, maybe in a year or so it would be the right job. And Mm -hmm. Paula said, Ruth, it's never the right time. You have to take the opportunities when they come along. If you don't take it, it won't come again. So just do it. The other piece of it was, and this is probably the best advice I have to give anyone. Oh, goody. It's the things that frighten you that are the things that you have to do. Oh, God. When something really scares you, you mm-hmm. know you have to do it. And, you know, it's like every, every scary thing. I mean, running the David Foster Wallace piece was terrifying, which was why I knew that there was no way I could walk away from it. The first major review, the review I'm known for, which is the one of Le Cirque, where I wrote it in two takes, one as myself and one as a person in disguise. I thought I was going to get fired for writing that piece. I mean, I didn't sleep for two nights before that piece was printed. Really? I was so frightened that I was convinced that I hadn't ever been to the restaurant. I mean, I made myself so crazy that I thought I had made the whole thing up. But wait a minute, for those who are listening, can you describe, you? so it was two different pieces that ran side? It it, it was one piece, but I, I said, Le Cirque is two different restaurants depending on who you are. So I went many times in disguise and they treated me like dirt. And then the last time, that I went, I didn't go in disguise. I didn't make the reservation in my own name, but I didn't go in disguise. And I knew he had a picture of me. And sure enough, the owner sees me. And I went with my nephew, who was working on Wall Street, and I got him to make the reservation. And he said, well, I could only get a 9.30. And I said, okay, let's go at 8 and see what happens. And we walk in at 8, and there's this huge group of people waiting for a table, Mm-hmm. And the owner, Sirio, sees me and he parts them like the Red Sea, takes my hand, pulls me forward and says, the king of Spain is waiting in the bar, but your table is ready. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I said to my nephew, oh, yeah, the king of Spain is waiting in the bar. And he turns around and he goes, he is waiting in the bar. <laughs> I saw him on TV last night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I can't get over this. Okay. And, and so then he says, you know, can we make you a menu? And there's, you know, white truffles and black truffles and champagne. And, you know, they give us a table for four for the two of us. And so I write, this is what happens if you're the restaurant critic of the New York Times. But if you're just an ordinary person going there, don't think they're going to be very nice to you because they aren't. You're looking at that picture of the couple. Yeah, Exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah, so go ahead. So nobody had ever done anything like and that. No, and nobody at the New York Times had ever done anything like that. And I knew that my editors were really nervous. And I, I wasn't quite sure why they were so nervous, but I, I could feel it. And I knew that it had gone all the way up, that the editor-in-chief had read, the, and he didn't read Rastorant. They had vetted it with him. And the next day I found out that it was the publisher, uh, Punch Salzberger's favorite restaurant, and that they really were terrified. Wow. My editor later called me, and I was so nervous I couldn't even pick up my messages the next day. I waited, like, until, like, 4 o'clock in the afternoon to actually listen to my messages because I knew. Yeah. I, I didn't go into the office. I was just... And the first message of the day was from my editor who said, well, everything is fine because the first phone call that Punch got this morning was from Walter Annenberg, a very big deal, Walter Annenberg. He said, who called Punch and said, that's the best review the Times has ever run because apparently he had once gone there and not been recognized and been treated like dirt. That's incredible. So what did this experience teach you? Well, again, when something frightens you, you have to do it. It's worth doing. And, you know, that you always have to push the envelope, that mm. it's really important to have new experiences. And and the other part of that is, and this is the other big piece of advice I have to give people, is the only thing that really keeps you young is constantly doing things you don't know how to do. Mm-hmm. If you spend your whole life doing things you already know how to do, you get old fast. The one thing that I've realized, you know, doing this crazy ass podcast, talking to older women, is the subject of endings. That subject comes up a lot in conversation. And, and how do you deal with endings in your life? You know, be it jobs, which I know you've had multiple endings on, and marriage and losing people that are close to you. I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but I'd be curious to hear your take on it. How have you gotten through big shifting endings, if you have? Well, you know, I go into the kitchen. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, I mean, that's, that's sort of where, when I'm really in a bad place, I just start cooking. Mm-hmm. And it focuses me. It's a meditation. It's a meditation and... You know, it reminds me that I'm lucky to still be alive. And I think the only way to honor the memory of the people you love is to just live your life to the fullest. Mm. You know, and going into the kitchen sort of reminds me of that. It's like being around all the aromas and, you know, the wonderful tactile sense and slicing. And um, it sort of brings me back to into the world. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a really selfish question? Because when I was reading your my kitchen year, you know your recipe for pound cake? Uh-huh. So I'm going to make that one as soon as I get home. But I was thinking I might add orange to it. Oh, yes. You like that? I do. I love that. And so would you add like a tablespoon of orange zest? I was thinking maybe like a tablespoon of orange zest and maybe half a cup of orange juice because we have orange trees, so I could use our oranges. Well, I would certainly add, you know, the zest of one large orange. I'm not, I have to look at that recipe because I'm not sure what orange juice would do to it. The acid may change the balance. Uh Uh-huh. I would start by just using zest. 
Okay. And not, not juice. Okay. I'm pulling out the book for those who are listening because, oh, and I have to make those eggs and the potato. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I, <laughs> you're making me hungry, woman. Uh, oh. This is so much fun. I can't tell you how much fun I'm having talking to you. And I'm going to be in LA for three months this year. So, Oh, yeah. So speaking of which, so I was hoping maybe I could get you guys to come up to Santa Barbara. You could come up and sure. I was about to say, I'll cook for you, but maybe well, we could cook we'll together. cook together. Yeah. You want to? Sure. I would love to. I would love okay, to. Okay, great. All right. Now I'm already freaking out thinking Don't about freak what out. we're going to have. Don't freak out. Hey, can I ask you something? Do you remember when we were at, we were at our mutual friend's house uh, having dinner and I brought a key lime pie. Did you hate it? No, I love key lime pie. And it was a great key lime pie. Why would I hate it? I don't know. I was worried. I wasn't sure. I am not a big sweets person. That may be it. Um, so I don't, I mean, I never eat a lot of sweet things. Although mm-hmm. I have to say, I've pretty much devoured your really wonderful marmalade. Oh, well, guess what? You are getting so much more of it. It is so delicious. We can make it when you come. If we've got oranges in season, that would be fun to do too. That would be great. But can I just I am not a chef. I mean, I'm not a trained chef. I'm just a person who likes to cook. Okay. I mean, you know, I... I hear you. you I hear you. And I did... You know, I was part, I, I had a restaurant, but it was a collective. We all did everything. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I was the chef and sometimes I was the dishwasher. Okay, got it. So you're a dishwasher. I could use a dishwasher. <laughs> I'm a good dishwasher. <laughs> and I even like washing dishes. Do you really? I, I do. Well, if you're good at it, I will, I, I, you are employed. But okay. if you're not, I'm going to 100% fire you. Okay, so now I, there's just, I'm going to ask you a couple more little really quick questions. Tell me something that you would go back and tell yourself at the age of 21, if you could. You will be happy. Oh, that's a good one. Is there something you go back and say yes to? I don't think I've ever turned down anything that I wish I hadn't. No. Oh, how nice. Is there something that you wish you'd spent less time on? Not really. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but I don't have a lot of regrets. I was just going to say, you're not a regretful person. And so what are you learning now? What am I learning now? I, I've actually been trying to do a whole bunch of, of new things now. Yeah. You know, I mean, right after I left Gourmet, I wrote a novel, mostly because I thought, I don't know how to do this, so let me see if I can. Yeah. And I've just turned in a new one. and. Ooh. Let me say it, it gets easier the second time and much Mm -hmm. more fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things I've learned with that is I find writing very difficult. It is difficult. I I like having written, but writing itself is often awful. I did not find writing this novel difficult. I found it pure pleasure, just a joy. What do you attribute that to? I don't know, but my agent said, you're never allowed to write anything you do, that isn't fun again. Interesting. To have been writing professionally for, what, 50-some years and suddenly yeah. find out that even the act of writing can be fun? Wow. Amazing. Thank you, Ruth. This was so much fun. I feel like, you know, I could just sit here all afternoon. I know. I feel the same. I feel like this is a conversation to be continued, which you and I can do 
between us, but this has been very kind of you to be so honest and open and you're just an inspiration and on so many different levels to me and I know to others, of course. Oh, thanks. Um, really fun for me. And I'll see you. I'll see you in LA. Yeah, please. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Mwah. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Oh my God. I just agreed to cook for Ruth Reichel. Why the fuck did I do that? Oh my God. I need to ask my mom what to make. I got to call my mom. Hi, honey. Hi, mommy. How are you? All is well. All is well. And and how about with you? Everything is great. I mean, tons to catch up on. I want to tell you about my call with Ruth Reichel because, mom, I wish you could have been in the conversation with us. You would have been so delighted to talk to her. You're you're cut from uh, the same cloth in many ways. It was incredible. Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, I'm glad you know how to pronounce her name because I've always called her Ruth Reichel. I know. So it's Reichel. I know. Reichel. It's Reichel. Exactly. But the same cloth, may, may, can you put that on my tombstone? Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, no, I'm not kidding. That, that makes me feel better about how I boil eggs and everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I boil an egg now, I'm going to say, this is exactly what the way that Ruth would have done it. Right, exactly. God, there's so much. I, I have so much to tell you. So first of all, she was talking about growing up in the 50s, and she said American food was a complete joke in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And so I was remembering what you said about Didi, my grandma Didi, and her mom, because great-grandma Bessie grew her food and canned her mm-hmm. food, and mm-hmm. your mom's reaction to that, she thought that was appalling. It, well, it's true. And also, I think it's a reaction against, uh, you know, in other words, I, I think uh, my mom's reaction was uh, she saw her mother in the kitchen all the time doing all the stuff, all about meals. Mm-hmm. And mother's generation, that, who was, they were more flappers, and they wanted to have some fun. So frozen foods and canned foods and, and dresses that weren't homemade. Got it. And I do think that the generation that my mother, that was my mother's thing of the frozen foods and the canned foods was terrible food. And my mother used to make baked beans. But what she did was just, she opened the can and dumped it. And then it was just, she put a lot of brown sugar in it. And that that was our baked beans. And then there were our gelatin molds also, (laughs) which, by the way, have been underrated. Right. Because I have to say, it's a great thing to make. Perhaps when you come to visit next, we'll... We'll make it. I I will say I find the notion of it repulsive, but I'm happy to try it. So this is another thing that she was talking about. She um, talks about it, food and the making of food as a meditation. When she is sort of at her lowest, she goes into the kitchen. Uh And that's been a sort of a savior to her. And it's an interesting thing because certainly in our lives together, when there have been challenges, and we've had a few, we often talk about what we're going to make. Absolutely. And I remember at 9-11 that we sat watching that picture over and over again. And I remember feeling that the bottom had dropped out of everything. And then I thought, oh my gosh, it's Matt Sartman's birthday. And so I called Ellie and I said, 
what are you doing for Maddie's birthday? And she said, well, we're going to go out for dinner, but of course we're not now. I said, oh, Ellie, please, please, please come over here. <laughs> and she said, oh, b- b- great. So I made a meatloaf and, and mashed potatoes and green beans and applesauce and uh, angel food cake. I mean, I was there cooking and I, it was like, there is a tomorrow. There is something to live for. Yeah, very important. Well, speaking of that, mom, so she and her husband, Michael, are coming to LA. They're going to be um, there for a couple of months. And so I said, uh-huh. oh my God, I have to have you up to Santa Barbara. And I said, and we can, and then I immediately I'm thinking, oh shit, what am I going to cook? And and I said, well, we can, I said, I can cook. And she said, we can cook together. And I said, yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh my, oh my God. I know. Oh, yeah. So oh. you have to start thinking, mom, what can I make? Put your thinking cap on and report back to me. We have to think about that. Oh gosh. I know. Oh, Julia, that is going to be priceless. That's going to be absolutely priceless. Yeah, I know. Oh. I'm excited. And she, I did give her orange marmalade uh, last year because we had dinner, um, with Jim and Carlene and I gave her orange marmalade and she remembered and was saying how much she loved it. So needless to say, she's going to get a uh, case of that fucking marmalade when I see her next. Well, no, 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 not a case, uh, half a case. All right. Half a case. I know you get the other half, mommy. You get the other. Uh, yeah. Thank you. You're thank welcome. you. Thank you. <laughs> oh yeah. By the way, making the marmalade, how about that? That is such a precious thing to do. You have the oranges right there and they grow out of your actual soil Yeah, and then you get them and then you do them and it's the best marmalade in the world. It's pretty good, but you know, Grandma Didi would not uh, approve, but that's fine. We've, we brought it back around to the real thing. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. It wasn't frozen. It wasn't, wasn't bird's eye. But, but <laughs> it we'll, wasn't bird's we'll, eye we'll, marmalade. We'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah, but we'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. Love you, Mommy. I love you. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. There's more Wiser Than Me with Lemonada Premium. Subscribers get exclusive access to bonus content. Subscribe now in Apple Podcasts. Wiser Than Me is a production of Lemonada Media, created and hosted by me, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. The show is produced by Chrissy Pease, Alex McOwen, and Oha Lopez. Brad Hall is a consulting producer. Our senior editor is Tracy Clayton. Rachel Neal is our senior director of new content, and our VP of weekly production is Steve Nelson. Executive producers are Stephanie Whittles-Wax, Jessica Cordova-Kramer, Paula Kaplan, and me. The show is mixed by Kat Yor and Johnny Vince Evans and music by Henry Hall, who you can also find on Spotify or wherever you listen to your music. Special thanks to Charlotte Chrisman Cohen, Ivan Karayev, and of course, my mother, Judith Bowles. Follow Wiser Than Me wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if there's an old lady in your life, listen up. This episode of Wiser Than Me is brought to you by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark makes their bourbon carefully, so please enjoy it that way. Maker's Mark Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, 45% alcohol by volume. Copyright 2024, Maker's Mark Distillery, Incorporated, Loretto, Kentucky. Hey, Wiser Than Me listeners. We want to hear from you. By just answering a few questions on our listener survey, 
You can share feedback about show content you'd like to see in the future and help us think about what brands would serve you best. And even better, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. The survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and keep bringing you content you love. Just go to lemonademedia.com slash survey. lemonademedia.com slash survey.